Well, good morning. It's nice to see you all here this morning. Thank you for joining us. Uh, if you're visiting and you don't have a Bible, uh, you could find one on the rack on the chair in front of you. It's one of the first few pages, page number three. We'll be starting in Genesis 6. You know you're getting old when you need glasses to see far, but you have to take them off to read. So. <laughs> All right, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it, the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark, and finish it to a cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, And you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kind, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives and him and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah, 
And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark. They, they and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted, excuse me, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for this morning, the opportunity to be here uh, corporately as believers, gathered under the sound of your word to to worship, to... uh, to see Jesus, and we just we ask God that you would open the eyes of our heart this morning, that as Gibson brings forth your word, that you would uh, make it clear to us uh, who your son is. We know there is much to say of him, even in the uh, the Old Testament, God, and we just pray that as we hear of him, that our love would increase, that we would be endeared to him that we would be convicted to uh, leave the sins that so easily beset us and run to him. God, we pray for for us as we go throughout the week that, that these words would not um, just affect us this morning and then be forgotten, that we would not be as people that look in a mirror and then when we turn away we forget what we look like, but that we would be doers of your word and not just hearers. It's in your son's precious name that we pray these things. Amen. It's a long section today, and uh, so we've decided to take the flood narrative and divide it into two parts. Uh, this morning we'll be covering part one, uh, 6, 9 through seven twenty four that Jeff just read. And... Uh, 
next week we'll pick up with 8-1 and carry it through the end. Uh, say a uh, distorted passage, uh, you know, in our, in our days. Uh, oftentimes when you see a, uh, an image of, the, of Noah's Ark, uh, it's, it's in sort of a nursery book, kind of a happy way, isn't it? Uh, this morning I, I went downstairs just to scour our children's library and, uh, and I wanted to see how it was depicted. And, uh, and this is kind of common, I think, that um, if you remember from nursery, maybe you had a border of wallpaper or something, uh, or wallpaper in your, in your nursery uh, about Noah's Ark, but, but you just see just kind of a happy cruise with a happy family and happy animals, and uh, pretty much everybody is smiling in this image, um, except for Noah's wife. Uh, she is not smiling. Um, but even the fish are smiling and the waters are kind of gentle and lapping waves. And uh, it looks like a beautiful sunny. There's a rainbow in the background. And uh, I think that this is kind of a common representation when we talk about Noah's Ark. Uh, and unfortunately, when you get into the text, it's a little bit uh, more sobering, isn't it? It's kind of somber. Um, it's as though uh, there were some sort of a nuclear fallout that destroyed the entire population of the world and everything was completely annihilated and that future generations wrote children's books depicting some sort of a happy account of that. But we should change the way we view Noah's Ark and see it biblically as the annihilation God's extermination of evil in a pre-flood world. <clears throat> the chapter started, <clears throat> the section started in Genesis 6-9 with the generations of Noah. And that's the third time that that formula is used. These are the generations of. If you've been around this summer, you know that there are ten sections in Genesis. Each one starts with that phrase, these are the generations of. And from each new section, it narrows the pool of candidates of who the promised son would be who would come and ultimately destroy sin. It starts with the generations of the heavens and the earth, and then it gets down to the generations of Adam, and then the generations of Seth, and then the generations of Noah. It's going to get into the generations of Shem. It's going to get into the generations of Abraham, uh, Jacob, Isaac, uh, and then eventually Judah at the end of Genesis has promised that from your line, the scepter will not depart. Ultimately, we learn the promises that King David would be the one in whose seed would be the Messiah. But every generation from this point is looking for the Messiah. They're looking for the one who would save them. Even Noah's dad said, this is the one who's finally going to give us rest from the curse. So we'll find out in this narrative, <clears throat> in this section, if Noah is this hero. This is a bridge section. Uh, Kenneth Matthew says this section provides an interpretive bridge between the shadowy past before the flood and the nearer, more comprehensible era of the fathers following the flood. And I like the way he phrased that the shadowy past. 
Because this is a 1,600-year period in which God hasn't told us, He hasn't answered all the questions that you and I have about the pre-flood world, has He? And there's a lot that we would want to know. If you were here last week, you heard me struggle through the passage on the Nephilim and the sons of God marrying the daughters of men and producing this race of demonic, giantoid kind of weird creatures. It was the most difficult passage I'll probably ever have to preach in the book of Genesis, and I'm really glad it's over. Uh, I, I, I don't even know if I'll put it up online. It was that uh, difficult of a passage to labor through. Uh, but, but this section provides a bridge between the pre-flood world and the post-flood world that is a little bit more recognizable to us. Today's message, I hope, will help you see not just a different understanding of Noah and the flood, but I hope that in today's passage, you have a clearer understanding of the gospel message and how Noah's ark pictures salvation. I hope that you'll see in Jesus Christ, we find the ark of our true salvation. And I think you'll see that as we get into our topic today. It's a long section. Uh, the whole section, the flood narrative, uh, extends through chapter 8 and, uh, and goes till the end of 8. And then chapter 9 gets into uh, reestablishing or recreation. So I've chosen to take the flood narrative and divide it into two. And, uh, and I think in the next slide here, uh, you can start to see some of the structure as God revealed this to Moses in... Uh, you know, the Exodus period, God is revealing all of this information, this narrative to Moses and the children of Israel who were delivered from Egypt. And he, he did that for a reason. And so as God delivered it to Moses, Moses recorded it. And he recorded it in what's called a chiastic structure. Uh, there's a literary organization to this section. And not just this section, there are a dozen or more chiastic structures in the book of Genesis alone. And what is a chiastic structure? If my mic doesn't whistle here, uh, I've tried to diagram it here to where points A and A1 form a mirror of each other. So in point A, God resolves to destroy the corrupt race. That's in chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. And then the mirror after the flood is the Lord resolves not to destroy humankind, 8, 21 through 22. Uh, point B, Noah builds an ark according to God's instructions. And point B1, Noah builds an altar to worship God. C, the Lord commands the remnant to enter the ark. C, God commands the remnant to leave the ark. E, the flood, the flood prevails 150 days and the mountains are covered. E1, the flood recedes for 150 days and the mountains are visible. And what's unique about a chiastic structure is it <clears throat> draws your focus somewhere, doesn't it? I've, I've highlighted it there in red. The chiastic structure draws our attention to the main point that the author is trying to convey. And the point that God wants to convey through this chiastic structure is we're meant to see something. And you might say, well, it's neat and all that, uh, that this is in this structure. But 
what could that possibly mean and who cares and how could we possibly apply that to our life today? I think if you were to look at the focal point of this narrative as a whole section, Genesis 8.1 is that God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. And I think that this would have encouraged Moses and the Israelites. Where had they just come from? They had just been in Egypt for 400 years living as slaves. And in this Egyptian slavery period, we read that God remembered them in Exodus chapter 2. That passage says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew them. I spoke with a local pastor uh, this past week, and he described his summer sermon series. Uh, They were walking through the names of God in the Old Testament. And I said, did you get to that one in, uh, in Genesis where... Hagar has been mistreated and she flees out into the wilderness and she doesn't even want uh, to deal with the grief of the baby that she's carrying. And, and so she sets the baby aside to expose it and walks off and goes to a, a, an area a little further away. And the angel of the Lord comes to her and he encourages her and she calls his name the God who sees my affliction. It's one of those encouraging passages that we can see here in this passage. This would have encouraged Moses and the Israelites as they remembered that God remembers them. And I think this brings us to an application point that we can find from this entire section. And that is that in the midst of the worst judgment the world has ever known, God did not forget about those whom He promised to save. You may, no doubt, go through seasons of your life when you wonder if God sees you. When you wonder if He has forgotten about you or when you wonder if He even cares about what you're going through. I can remember a time in my life after I had been saved and prepared for ministry and called to ministry and had been in ministry for a period of time that maybe a three-year period, maybe a four-year period, uh, I wasn't involved in any real ministry at all. Uh, as an evangelist, my, my phone was silent. Uh, I was, uh, had very little ministry responsibility, and very few people were asking me to do really much of anything in my mid to late 20s. And after a, a certain amount of time, I, I just started to feel like God had put me in a box and put me on a shelf in a far corner of the kingdom. And I just didn't really have much usefulness. And during that time, I began to ask God if He had really called me, if there was really any plan for me, if there was really any purpose, any uh, goal, any role that I should be involved in, if, 
if he intended to use me at all in my life. I felt to some degree forgotten. Have you ever felt uh, put on the shelf by the Lord? Have you ever felt that your service or your days are somewhat meaningless in the grand scheme of things in the kingdom? Like you're not really making an impact. Or maybe you're in the middle of a trial and there is something painful happening all around you and you've been crying out, you've been praying, you've been seeking God, you've been asking for help, you've been asking for deliverance, you've been asking for a breakthrough in some way and yet it seems like God has been silent. You might feel forgotten by God, but let me assure you that if you are in Christ, you can be assured that He has not forgotten you and nor has He left you. Isaiah 49, verses 14 through 16, Israel had gone through a period of time like this. Zion had said, the Lord has forsaken me. My God has forgotten me. And God responds, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even though she may forget, I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. You are continually before me. No matter what you're going through, if you feel like God has forgotten about you, be comforted from this passage and from the reality, from the truth that God does not forget and He will not leave you alone. And God knows how to rescue the godly. Peter describes that God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And if you are in Christ, He knows how to rescue you. And He will not forget you. And He will remember you. Now that you have some kind of an overview of the whole section, let's get back into kind of our focal point. And because we're covering so much material, I've organized the sermon today around four questions, uh, and I've created uh, a slideshow, which for me is super unusual. Um, And speaking of slideshow, (laughs) before the service, I went up and I told Lily, hey, you know, when they're doing the songs... Uh, press the forward button at the begin at the very beginning of the last sentence, and so she is a dutiful, obedient daughter. Was just quick on the trigger, and so I want you to know that was my fault. <laughs> if you felt like the slides were kind of rushing as you were singing the fourth line of the song, but let me take the heat. No, no glances back toward the sound booth. Right? If you've ever been in the sound booth, there's a lot of pressure up there, right, to push the button at the right time, and and so. Lily, I'm shielding you. Right? They're going to come. To, if anybody comes to you and says, "Hey, it's my dad's fault," um, but I've created a slideshow, um, which is unusual for me. I don't usually do this, but I did it because we're covering so much material, and I've organized uh, these 50 or 60 verses or so that Jeff uh, read for us today around four questions. Number one: Why did God judge the world and choose to decreate? After 1600 years. Why did this picture is of decreation? God destroying everything that he created. Why did God decreate everything? That's the first question we're going to answer. The second, how did God decreate or judge the inhabitants of the world? The third question is, why did Noah find any favor with God at all? Why were there eight people who were righteous in the midst of billions of people who were wicked and evil. And then the fourth question is, what were the means by which God would save Noah? And how does that inform us 
about salvation and about who God is. So let's get into the first question. The reason for decreation, slide number two here, is why did God judge the world and decreate? Well, last week was the fuller scope of Genesis 6, 1 through 7 that described the Nephilim and the sons of God coming into the daughters of men, biblically speaking, and producing this giant race of offspring, the Nephilim, who were on the earth in those days, men of renown, men of violence. Listen, if you want that sermon, it may or may not be up uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, it was such a technical and difficult passage to work through, but uh, but it, it gave the, the reason uh, that God finally limited and said that uh, I'm not going to put up with this forever. Judgment will come in 120 years. Speaking about the time when Noah was told to build the ark until the time of the first raindrops, it would be a 120 year period of grace, proclaiming the gospel to a wicked generation, and then God saving Noah and his seven family members. That was last week's message, but the bottom line was there were demonic marriages and demonic offspring. And it's summarized for us in Genesis 6, 5 through 7. And I've highlighted and underlined the words, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And listen to this, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In verse 13, 11 through 13, the earth was corrupt, filled with violence. God saw that it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence. Kent Hughes says this, he says, the Genesis assessment of the sinfulness of pre-flood humanity astounds us. As bad as our world is today, this can't be said of it. Listen, you you live in the same world I do. You watch the same news that I do. You see the same things that take place around the world that I see. Uh, At times it's overwhelming, isn't it? To see the evil and the wickedness and the pain and the suffering that is in the world today. But it it can't even hold a candle to the Genesis account. Hughes continues, he says... um, What is said about the pre-flood world cannot be said of our world. It is not true of us that every intention of the thoughts of every single man and every single woman and every single child's heart are only evil continually. This was indeed the pre-flood assessment and the forecast that every forming, every purposing of every single thought was all evil all the time. Pre-flood culture had undergone a thorough and complete demonization. Fallen angels, demons, had taken over the souls and bodies of men and through marriage had produced Nephilim who became the violent men who were of old, men of renown. And marriage had been demonized and violence was idolized and sexual violence was common every day. Therefore, God decided to wipe the world clean of every trace of humanity except for the man, Noah. It was so bad that there were only eight people left worth saving. Everyone else was too far gone. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine waking up and trying to go to work under those conditions? All over the globe... This 
was the state of man. And so God's only remedy was to destroy everything and start over. Which brings us to the second question. How would God decreate? How would God judge the world? We see in a a couple of key verses here uh, in the second slide there. um, How would God judge the world? He would do so through water. Look at verses 13 and 17 of chapter 6. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. It's interesting uh, that God would destroy them with the very thing that He created uh, and said was good, it was good, it was good, it was very good. As God said all those things about creation, uh, He also... uh, built into that good creation the very mechanism that would also destroy the earth. You'll remember from previous uh, sermons in Genesis, uh, in the early uh, early parts of the summer, we talked about uh, how God created. And there's this curious phrase that God separated the waters from the waters and the expanse, the distance between the waters above and the waters below was called sky. And so we described how that created order was some sort of a, a vapor or water canopy uh, that, that was high into the atmosphere. And, and, and this gives us some sort of a hint at why uh, there, were, there was such long life for the pre-flood people. Uh, was that there was some sort of filtering mechanism in the atmosphere from the earth, I mean from the sun's harmful rays. And it produced a uh, what's called a hyperbaric chamber. Have you ever heard of a hyperbaric chamber where uh, it's an oxygen-rich environment and, and because of the oxygen-rich environment and the, the filtering of any harmful rays of sun, it produced uh, a natural habitat and environment for extremely long life, uh, for extremely uh, good crops, and, and everything on the earth was, um, was in such a state that it was optimized for maximum growth and potential. God would judge the earth with the earth in that he, when He created, He created the very mechanism of judgment um, built into that. This was no surprise that God would do this. Genesis 7.4 tells us that He will send rain on the earth. And Genesis 7 verses 11-12 through 12 describes that in the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the month, listen to this phrase, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. This wasn't just a rainfall event. This was... A simultaneous bursting of water that was trapped within the earth's crust. Bursting forth is how it's described, as well as the waters above coming down. Now, up until this point, it hadn't rained on the earth. Genesis says that there was a mist that would come up from the ground and water it, but there was no rain at all. This, there, there, were, there were no clouds, there was no weather pattern in the skies, in this perfect environment. All this would be new for every inhabitant. God would judge the world through this water. The mechanism of judgment was water. Uh, 
a year ago, January 15th, 2022. I'm not going to say this right, so I'm sorry if you're a Pacific Islander. Um, the Hunga Tonga Hunga Hayapa'a volcano, right? Say that fast. Um, erupted on January 15th, 2022. This uh, underwater volcano in the South Pacific uh, sent a tsunami racing around the world and set off a sonic boom that circled the globe twice. The underwater eruption in the South Pacific Ocean also blasted an enormous plume of water vapor into the stratosphere, enough to fill more than 58,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Uh, Louis Milan, an atmospheric scientist, says we never have, we've never seen anything like it. He said that there were, uh, he led a new study examining the amount of water vapor that the Tonga vo- uh, volcano injected into the stratosphere. He said that that layer of atmosphere in which the water was injected was up to 33 miles above the Earth's surface. That is one volcano and one example of the springs of the Earth bursting forth and what the destructive power of water can do. Many of you remember December 26th, 2004, around 8 a.m. local time when um, a 9.3 earthquake struck the Sumatra coast in what's called the Boxing Day Tsunami. And, and you'll remember the coastlines of uh, that Southeast Asia all around the region. Uh, people began, they felt the earth tremble, they, they felt the earthquake about nine miles off the coast. And, and, and what happens is that the water... As the tsunami grows, the water recedes from the coastlines. And thousands of people wandered out into the area where there had just been, dry, uh, there had just been water. And now it was um, retreating, the water. And they said that a, a, a wave uh, over 100 feet tall um, poured over and created uh, so much death that I think numbers here uh, of total destruction were 227,898 people in 14 countries died, called the most deadly natural disaster in recorded history. You might also remember the Japanese earthquake that took place uh, in 2011 called the Great Sendai Earthquake. Occurred, occurred in northeastern Japan on March 11, 2011. Over 10,000 deaths were estimated. And I uh, spent a good bit of time this week just watching some of the footage of the power of these destructive waves uh, destroying a civilization. You have some of those pictures in your mind of some of these events, but, but imagine all the springs of the great deep bursting forth and all the earthquakes, and all the volcanoes, and all the, I don't know if it was some sort of a meteoric event that caused that water canopy to blow, but it was a worldwide destructive event. You can throw away any cute Noah's Ark storybook (laughs) that you have. Forget that picture of just happy giraffes and happy animals on a pleasure cruise. This was a violent, devastating, extinction-level event. And the sobering reality that you and I need to understand about God 
is that God punishes sin thoroughly. It's because of wickedness and sin that God sent this judgment on the earth. You see, we often minimize sin, don't we? That's no big deal. It's just a little pornography. It's no big deal. It's just a little alcohol. It's, it's no big deal. It's just a little gossip. It's no big deal. It's just a, a little bit of a slander against somebody. It's no big deal. It's just a few curse words here and there. Or it's no big deal. It's just this or it's just that. Or it doesn't matter what I watch. It doesn't matter what I listen to. We tend to minimize sin. We fail to acknowledge that God hates sin. And it's because of this collective sin that God judged the world so severely. It's because of sin that God punished His own Son so severely in our place. And so when Satan tempts us to minimize sin, remember the, remember the flood. Remember this event. You can be certain that God punishes sin thoroughly. He is a just God. He is a God who will not tolerate wickedness and evil. Revelation describes that in the last day, in the days of judgment, that books will be opened and that all of us will be held accountable for all the deeds done in the flesh. God will remember our sins. He has a book in which He will remember them. The good news is that if you're in Christ, He says about you that I will remember your sins no more because Jesus took the punishment on the cross. And when God opens your book, it will, it will show righteous through the blood of Christ. But God is just. He will not tolerate wickedness and evil. And you can be assured that the guilty will not go unpunished. Sometimes it seems like justice is slow, doesn't it? Have you ever wondered how people get away with such terrible things? Sometimes I wonder as well. There are times when even I know that my own conduct, that I should be punished and disciplined by the Lord. And yet in His grace and His mercy, He is patient and He is gracious and He is kind and He, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve if we're in Christ. It's a beautiful thing, the grace and the mercy of God. But when His judgment comes, it comes decisively and swiftly and thoroughly. And make no mistake, nobody escapes the justice of God. Nobody. Who could survive this uh, destruction? The way I wrote it here kind of sounds like a Hollywood voiceover trail, trailer. <laughs> Only one man and his family, chosen by God and preserved by his care. Right. Uh, the next slide, um, why did Noah find favor with God? What was it about Noah that made um, God save him? Why did he receive favor? Uh, we have a hint of this in these verses below. Chapter 6, verse 9, 6, 18, uh, 6, 22, 7, um, it says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. In verse 18, we learn that God establishes uh, a covenant of salvation with Noah. Um, in verse 22 of chapter 6, and, and in other places, you find that Noah did everything that God commanded him to do, meaning he was complete in his obedience to God. 
In chapter 7, verse 1, God says, I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. In verse 5 of chapter 7, the Lord uh, commanded Noah, and everything that he commanded him to do, Noah obeyed completely. So we have this detailed information about why God would uh, choose to save Noah. What was it about him? And and there's some things that we can learn about Noah, uh, and that we can learn about why God chooses to save you. Or why God chooses to save me. We learn about his character. We learn about his deeds. Of course, he built the ark. Uh, We learn about his uh, relationship with God. Uh, Kent Hughes says that um, the statement that says Noah was a righteous man, this is the first time that righteousness is mentioned in the Bible. And it sets the standard uh, for righteousness that comes by faith. You see right away in Scripture that the biblical doctrine of imputed righteousness, that is righteousness that we don't deserve, that is given to us or imputed to us or counted to us, is given to Noah because of his righteousness. But how was he righteous? Noah was righteousness, not from a righteousness that he possessed on his own. Noah was righteous because he believed in God. In the passage that we looked at last week and the week before from Hebrews, often called uh, the Hall of Faith. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but, but in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, we have a list of all of these people who lived by faith. And it's often called the Hall of Faith. Uh, we read about people that we've been talking about in verse 4 of Hebrews 11. By faith, Abel offered to God a more sacri- uh, acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Uh, by faith, Enoch was taken up <clears throat> because God had taken him. <clears throat> it says that without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. Verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By faith he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. How did Noah find favor with God? The short and simple answer is he believed in God. He didn't build an ark and then God said, Okay, now, now, <clears throat> now I'll accept you. Noah found favor with God before he ever chopped down a tree, before he ever built a tool, before he ever learned how to garden, before he ever learned how to preserve food, before he ever learned, he did, I don't know if he went to veterinary school, but he probably had to take care of all these animals. And Before he ever did anything for God, he believed God. And the only thing that kept him working through 120 years of sweat and labor was this promise of God and his faith in it. No one else in the world was doing anything like this. Against the grain of all society, Noah believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. Noah was pleasing to God. He found favor with God because he believed. And a point of application for for many people because I ask a lot of people this: is if, uh, if if God were to, uh, if you were to die and go to up uh, before God and stand before Him, and He were to say to you, "Why should I let you into my heaven?" What would you say to that question? The majority of people who answer that question say, "Because I'm a good person." It's because I'm a good person that that I deserve to go to heaven. 
It's exactly, um, by the way, the wrong answer. God does not save any of us because we deserve it and because we have any sort of goodness within ourselves. We tend to maximize our goodness and minimize our sinfulness because we often compare ourselves to other people, don't we? Well, I'm, I'm sinful, but I'm not like that guy. But what we don't do is we don't compare ourselves to the standard of righteousness that God lays out according to His holiness in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And according to that, the very minimal standard is that we worship the Lord only. That we have no other idols, that we obey our mother and our father, uh, that we honor them, uh, that we honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, that we not hate anyone or commit murder, that we not commit adultery or lust, that we not steal anything regardless of its value, that we not lie or slander or deceive at all, and that finally we not covet. Now listen, there's not a one of us who are innocent of any of those ten things. You don't get to heaven because of your own goodness. You get to heaven because of the righteousness of God that is given to you, imputed to you through Jesus' goodness. Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that we should have died. And those who believe in Him, who have placed their faith in Him, receive that righteousness upon faith. One of the deepest griefs that I carry as a pastor is that almost every week one of my prayers is, Lord, help those who are trusting in themselves to come to the end of themselves and to fully and finally surrender to You, trusting that their good works can't save them and leaning and depending and trusting in Jesus alone. I'm not talking about people I preach to in the community or out there. Church people are some of the hardest people to reach. Because their behavior is often publicly decent and moralistic and good. And they know a lot of Scripture. Jesus said in Matthew seven twenty one through 23 Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. By the way, what's the will of my Father in heaven? That, that, that we repent and believe. That's what Jesus came preaching. And then he says, many people will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we do all these great things in your name? And they'll point to their works. And Jesus' response to them will be, away from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. The greatest sin, the greatest real reality within the church, not just the church in America or the church here or this church or any, the church worldwide is that there are people who are trusting in themselves and their own goodness and their own Bible knowledge, and their own understanding of the Old Testament, and the New Testament, and the nuances. There are religious people who are not yet born again. Who hear these messages week in and week out, and it just, the enemy is deaf in their ears. And they're still counting on their own goodness to save them. You won't find that in Noah. If you thought Noah was the hero, just wait for a couple chapters. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to spill the beans, but Noah is no, he is no Messiah. There is no righteousness in Noah and himself. And if you're a born again believer, you're the first to say that I'm a sinner and I need Jesus and I need His grace. 
Noah was pleasing to God and he found favor in his eyes based upon faith. And then finally, let's look at the next slide. The next slide is that um, the Ark of Salvation. How did God save Noah? It was through this Ark of Salvation. Uh, There's a lot of details about the Ark, and I'm not going to get into all of them. It's like 450 feet long. Uh, It's... I don't remember how wide, it's so many cubits this way, and it's got an 18-inch, one-cubit sort of roof opening along the top. Uh, and there are all these details about the ark. Um, it's found in verses uh, 14 through 21 of chapter 7. But there are a couple of things that I want you to see about the ark and God's salvation of Noah in the ark. Um, how was God going to save Noah? He was going to place him in this ark... And then he was going to establish his covenant with Noah. Two things Noah knew. Build the ark and God will establish a covenant with you. That is, God's going to promise something of you. He's going to save through you. And that's what's called the Noahic covenant. That those who were the decreation of all things, God would rebuild through this covenant with Noah. It's amazing. Noah built the ark in obedience to God for 120 years. Sometimes I, you ever start to read or do some work and you get distracted? I, I get distracted within like a half hour. I can't, I can't do anything for a hundred years, right? Can you imagine waking up every day and putting on your tool belt? Yeah, some of you can, right? Some of you are much better than me, but, but Noah did this day in, day out, week in, week out for 120 years building this work. And it, it, it wasn't completed until a week before. Isn't that amazing? He had to master woodworking, architecture, construction, metalworking, farming, harvesting, preserving, veterinary skills, animal care, while still having time to be a good husband and a good father. Isn't that amazing? My neighbor had a pole barn put up by an Amish construction crew. And I, I woke up uh, to their work, at, you know, the crack of like 8 o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and they had all the poles already set. And I went back inside and I you know, made coffee and I made breakfast. And you know, like 9.30, I walked back outside and they already had the entire structure built. I went back inside, got my stuff together, uh, went back out, um, Went about my morning, and by noon, I'm just now sort of getting around to uh, my lunch break. I come home, and it's completed. And I think, oh my gosh, these guys complete more in five hours than I can. I can get done in three. I mean, I can't get near as much work as they got done. Noah was incredibly industrious and obedient. And I think that that, uh, I think God smiles on those who labor for the Lord in obedience to Him. There's no room for idleness. There's no room for laziness in God's kingdom. And Noah's, Noah was industrious and obedient. Um, I, somebody made this point that um, Noah did everything God commanded him to do, and God didn't do anything for Noah that he told Noah to do. But God didn't... Noah didn't do anything that only God could do, Right? God brought the animals in pairs and in the sevens. God closed the door and sealed it up himself after they went into the ark. And then God brought the waters 
But there's nothing that Noah did. There's nothing, God didn't do anything for Noah. God, I'm confused myself now. <laughs> Before I confuse you, you probably can work it out yourself better than I can say it. I'm not even going to try again. You can, you can figure that out. Here, I've written it. God does only what God can do, and we do what God has commanded us to do, and God won't do for you what he's told you to do. Even though we can. He commands us to work and to labor. Noah's task was to build an extinction-level event survival capsule. And it only had to survive one year and one month. That's it. So what happens after the flood? Is humanity restored? Was Noah able to uh, establish godliness? Uh, Was he able to eradicate sin? Uh, Did God's measures to destroy sin once for all happen in the flood? We're going to get to that in the coming weeks. But just a preview, don't set your hopes too high on Noah. How can we conclude? Let me just give you one one picture that I think uh, helps us to imagine and understand the ark of salvation. Remember, Moses is hearing this and recording it for the children of Israel as they're about to go into the land, in the conquest. So this is Thousand years later, Moses, Israelites have been delivered from Egypt. They've passed through the waters of judgment, right? The, the waters of judgment crashed in on uh, Pharaoh and on his army. Uh, but I want you to th- hear this because Moses is writing this, and in all the time that he's recording this, some of the same words are popping up that are similarities between Noah and Moses. Did you know that the same word used for ark in Genesis 6 through 9? is only used one other time in Scripture, and it's used when Moses' mother crafted an ark uh, and covered it to make it float and put the baby Moses in and floated him down the Nile River. I don't think that was lost on Moses. I don't think it was lost on Moses that uh, they were backed up to the Red Sea and that wicked, evil, Pharaoh and his army were attacking and that God parted the waters and saved them through the waters and then the waters of judgment crashed in on Pharaoh and his army. I don't think it was accidental that in the Canaanite conquest and the conquest of the land that Joshua, as he led them through, the priests were to carry the ark of the Lord and as they took their first step into the water of the Jordan River at flood stage, it backed up and separated so that they could pass through the waters. I don't think it was an accident that Jesus came preaching, be baptized for the repentance and forgiveness of your sins, that we pass through the waters, that we have this picture of baptism, that we have died to Christ, died to our sin, right, in in the waters of baptism, and we're raised up and saved to walk in a new life. This image that God gives us, whether it's through Noah or through Moses, or through these other shadows and types, they picture the Messiah who would come later. Not that baptism saves us, but these waters picture judgment, and Jesus saves us from that judgment if we are found in Christ. And this ark that fully survived that judgment, this ark became a vessel that brought many people through the waters of judgment. And in the same way, Jesus Christ is that same vessel. 
The only means of salvation, by the way, for those who would survive a future judgment. Jesus Christ bore the full wrath of God against sin. If God had chosen to punish Jesus in the flood, he would have been in the waters, dying as a substitute, placing Noah and his family in the ark. God didn't choose to save us that way, to bring redemption that way. God judged the evil population with a flood, but Jesus would have taken that punishment in the place of those who believed had God saw fit to do it that way. But instead, the ark points forward to the cross of Christ in which Jesus bore the punishment that was due to us. And if we will place our faith and trust in Jesus, God shuts us up tight in the ark of salvation. Isn't that a good picture? Isn't that a better way to view the flood? A gracious and merciful God who knows how to rescue his own. Father, we thank you for this picture of salvation that would come in Christ. As, as much as we hate the thought of the violent means in which the world was deconstructed, it's not lost on us that you, uh, that you saved Noah and his family from wicked, evil, demonic, violent people. And that it was in your mercy and in your grace that you destroyed that world. We thank you that you've given us a new world, a post-flood world, and and one in which uh, wickedness is restrained by your grace. But not for long. Your word tells us in Revelation that that there will come a great tribulation, a great war, uh, a period when even after the thousand year reign of Christ that the enemy will be released and the world will know that kind of wickedness again. But, but it also promises that the world will be judged again, but this time with fire. But you tell the believers through Paul and Corinthians that we will be saved through judgment, even through fire. We thank you that you know how to preserve those who are your own. And that Jesus, you told us in John 10, that we are in your hands and that nothing can snatch us out of your Father's hands. We thank you that you are capable of saving to the fullest those who are in Christ. My prayer is that those in here who are trusting in their own goodness, in their own morality, and in their own righteousness would surrender and would fully and finally Put their faith in you, Jesus, the ark of our salvation. We pray it in his name. Amen.